Good morning and welcome again to Morning Devotions. I'm Pastor Summerall, the pastor of the Cathedral of Praise. And all during this lockdown, I have the privilege and the joy of coming into your home every day and walking this journey together with you. I want you to understand there's thousands of people all over the world that are walking this journey together with us. We're not alone. God has not failed us. God has not forsaken us. Yes, we are very hot right now in our houses. Hot season has kicked in good and strong, and that's an answer to prayer. I've been praying for a strong hot season to kick in fast because the virus doesn't last outdoors in this heat. You say, well, Pastor, I'm not lasting indoors much with this heat. My head hurts. It's so hot. I understand. But this too will pass, and it will be well with you. This is going to be over very soon. We can hold on just a little while longer. God is good. Psalms chapter 91. We're clinging to this psalm all during this passage. And I have to be honest with you. Every time I've fought big spiritual battles in my life, there's always been a passage of Scripture that God has quickened to my heart. And I hold on to that passage, and I read it every day all during the battle. There's always a... There's always words of hope. There's always words of faith that God will quicken to your heart in these times. Psalms chapter 91, beginning with verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress. From the time this began, even back during the volcano days at Tha, I began to teach you to say, this is, this is what should fill our hearts about God. You are my refuge. You are my fortress. You are my God in whom I trust. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. Why? For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on lion and adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, Frontliners, sometimes in the middle of all that busyness of the day, duck into the CR, hide in the stall. So, Pastor, why would you go there? To pray. It's about the only place to be alone. Do you have any idea how much time I've spent in prayer, hiding in bathrooms around the world, in airports and on airplanes? And People leave you alone when you're in there. Sometimes you just need a place to cry out. When he calls to me, when you go and just call out to God, I will answer him. That's his promise. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. He has not abandoned you right now. 
I will rescue him, not just from this pestilence, but from the poverty that seems to be going with it. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. What great and precious promises. Now, I want us to pray about a couple of things today. Number one, I want us to continue to pray for the frontliners. We prayed about them a lot at first, and it's really easy to forget. It has not gotten easier for our brothers and sisters. They're tired. It's gotten harder. Not gotten easier. The doctors, the nurses, the orderlies, the med techs, the people who provide the food in the, ho- in the uh, hospitals, all of these people, have, they haven't had any rest. They're going 24-7. Some of these doctors and residents and interns are working 36-hour shifts, and then they get a few hours of sleep, and then they're back on 36 again. I can't even imagine it. I'm a hard worker. Let's pray for them today. And number two, let's continue to pray. Many of you, you're, you're fine financially, okay? Finances are not even a question during this time. But many of our brothers and sisters who work no work, no pay jobs, this has been a struggle. So we've been praying for you. We're going to have some testimonies again this morning. It is so beautiful, so beautiful, all the testimonies that are coming in on how God is providing. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come and we thank you for your great and precious promises. But Lord, we don't just thank you for your promises. We thank you for who you are. Faithful is he who promised. You are faithful, God, to your promises. You are faithful to every word you have spoken. And you are faithful in your love toward us. And we thank you, Father. Oh, we thank you. I pray for all the doctors, all the nurses, the orderlies, the janitors, the people who serve the food, the med techs, all the people who work in those hospitals and on the front lines right now, all the people who work in the banks, the people who are selling food at the grocery stores. Lord, what would we do without these people in the grocery stores? We know it's four hours to get in, Lord, but those people are there all day on their feet. Father, we pray for all of these people that are sacrificing of themselves in this time. Keep your hand of protection upon them. Let the angels of God guard them in all of their ways and keep them safe in Jesus' name. And Father, some of them have contracted this thing. They're they're COVID positive. (laughs) But Jesus, you said that you have redeemed us from the plague that sticks to us in Deuteronomy 28. You took that curse when you hung on the tree. That plague that sticks, you redeemed us from it. Jesus, you healed people of the plague in Luke 11. Jesus, let that thing just leave their bodies right now in Jesus' name. Just leave their bodies in Jesus' name. Father, I lift to you all of our families right now that are struggling financially. I thank you for all the ideas. And I thank you for all the blessings that you're already bringing to families. And Lord, you're showing them how to earn and put food on the table. But Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you just let that go across the board. Every family that is struggling right now, just plant an idea in their minds of work that they can do with their hands, work that you can bless. Father, in Jesus' name, just plant that seed right now this morning. As they wake up from their sleep, Lord, as they sit there and eat breakfast, an idea will spark in them. And Father, that God idea will put food on the table until this thing is finished. I thank you for it, Father. 
I pray for all of our workers down in Aroma and Happy Land. Father, I can't even imagine the faithfulness. I can't even imagine how proud you are in your heart of them. The smile upon your face, the pleasure of your heart as you see them sacrificing of themselves to go down and feed the poorest of the poor. Let the angels of God shelter them and protect them and keep them safe. And Father, for all that they have sowed, all the time, all the labor, Lord, let them reap a harvest in their families. Let them reap a harvest in their families. No sickness shall come near anybody in their home. Always provide for their children, Lord, because they have provided for yours. Let them see your hand of blessing upon the next generation of their family because of what they have done to these, your children. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's open up our hearts and spend some time in worship now.
I'd like us to go to some testimonies now. It is beautiful how God is providing for our family. So not tomorrow or Sunday, or not tonight or Sunday, but every morning and every evening next week, we're going to be having testimonies, really until this thing is finished. So if you've got testimonies on how God has provided for your family during this time, we want you to make a little video on your cell phone and send it into your district pastor, and they'll get it to me, and I'll get it to Brother Jong. So please help us with these testimonies. Your testimony of how God gave you an idea and how God is helping your family will be a blessing to everybody else. Let's go to one right now. Hello, COP. We are Mon and Len Madardespo from the East Campus. We would like to testify po of God's goodness to our family during this lockdown period. Praise God po for financial blessing from one of the companies that we are in. We received 50% of our cash band reserve that the company is saving for us. Praise God for favor. I was able to close a deal during this lockdown. Truly, as the Lord says in Matthew 6.33, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Thank God for His timely provision. I have watched their family, Lynn and her husband, sing in the choir, and they've been so faithful all through the years. God has promised, I will be faithful to those who are faithful. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to all of your people in this time. Let them see. Let them see that it is not, <laughs> it is not useless to serve the Lord. There are so many people that are saying that right now. Let them see in this time of distinction your hand of faithfulness on your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's get to Luke today. Luke chapter 17, beginning with verse 11. Very, very famous passage of scripture as we get started, the cleansing of the ten lepers. But I, there's some things I saw last night and this morning that just made my heart go crazy. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So notice he's in between Samaria and Galilee. So there's going to be people of both areas around here. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. They say, well, pastor, why do they stand at a distance and lifted their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us? Why, why did they stand at a distance? Social distancing. I, I know we think that that is a new word and a new concept in our, our situation today, but it has always been practiced in cultures. The lepers were considered contagious. It was a disease that nobody understood. It was a disease that nobody knew how to cure except Jesus. And so when you developed leprosy, you were kicked out of the village, your family sent you away, and the only friends you had were lepers. So notice the 10 lepers. You see, folks, one of the things you learn is that even though one of these that you're seeing just a moment was a Samaritan, there's no prejudice among people who, who have no other friends. These lepers had nobody else but each other. So social distancing is practiced. They could not come near people. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Even the Samaritan cried out for mercy. When he saw them, he said to them, go, show yourself to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And notice, obedient faith brought a miracle. They didn't come and touch the hem of his garment. They didn't have to come and have Jesus lay hands on them. They didn't have to come and have Jesus pray a special prayer for them. As they went, 
they were healed. As they obeyed in faith, the miracle flowed. Now, we could stop right there if we wanted, but don't stop. Notice down in verse 16, now he was a Samaritan. One of these guys was a Samaritan, and Jesus told him to go to the temple and show himself to the priests. Now, forgive me, Samaritans did not go to the temple in Jerusalem. Number one, they weren't allowed. Number two, they didn't believe in it. Because you remember the Samaritan woman said, Jesus, our fathers say that we should worship at this mountain, but you Jews say that you should worship in the temple. Remember, this was a big debate about worship at that time. And, and where, where, do you, where do you worship? So Jesus told him to go to the temple. And he obeyed. And as he obeyed in faith, as he got over his prejudice, and he got over his bigotry, as he got over the bitterness of his heart, as he got over his fear of what people would do to him, this, this thing is so much bigger than just obedient faith. It's one man's obedient faith in the midst of the bigotry and prejudice and all of the after effects and all of the grief that it causes. But that Samaritan obeyed along with the other nine. Go show yourself to the priests, and as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw he had been healed. Now, healing there just refers to it's gone. They've been cleansed. The, the leprosy has left their body. There's no more open sores. There's no more infection. It's left their body. He turned back, and praising God with a loud voice, he came and fell on Jesus' feet. He no longer acted like a leper and stayed away and just cried out from a distance. Now he realized he's healed. And he came and fell at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Were not ten of you cleansed from this leprosy? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Now, the Greek word there for well is sozo. It means whole, total, complete restoration in life. Nine of them, because of obedient faith, got cleansed of the leprosy. The leprosy is no more, but you can still see the effects. The scars would be there, missing digits on their fingers, maybe missing noses, maybe missing ears. There'd be scars on their arms where the, the leprosy had been eating the flesh. Literally, it's like the walking dead, all right? Leprosy is a horrible disease. But this one guy, not only did he have obedient faith in the face of prejudice, it was much more difficult for him to obey. But he still obeyed in faith. Let me say that again. It was much more difficult for him to obey because of the bigotry and the prejudice of a lifetime that he had both shown and experienced. But now, because prejudice and bigotry always goes two ways, remember. But now he comes back and is thankful. And thankfulness brought extra, extra miracle, extra supernatural. I don't even know how to say it. But he didn't just get cleansed. He was made sozo. He was made whole. He got his nose back. He got his ears back. He got his fingers back. He got his toes back. He got all that flesh replaced on his skin. Can you imagine how he looked and how he felt as he began to look at his fingers, look at his toes, 
feel his face, feel his ears. He was made whole because he was thankful. Now, the principles here are just overwhelming. Number one, it is easier for some people to believe than it is for others because of the prejudice and bigotry that they have both given and received. But I think the greatest principle here, when you come back and say thank you, God does even more. Now, I've always tried to do that in my life. When God provides a financial miracle, I come back and say thank you. And it's amazing how much more flows. If there's healing or sickness in my body, any miracle, you name the miracle. If you will come back and fall at his feet and say thank you, it is amazing how much more flows. God honors a thankful heart. Let me say that again, please. God honors a thankful heart. Let me say that again, please. God honors a thankful heart. When this thing is finished and we gather together in the house of God, now, they may not take all the quarantine office at first. We may still have some social distancing. And, you know, if we do, then we'll run how many services we need and we'll have church by appointment and, and we'll make sure that we follow all the laws and we'll get everybody there. doesn't matter how many services we have to do on a weekend, we'll get everybody there. But when this is over, we're going to come into the house of God. And we're going to spend a service just being thankful. Thankful for how he's healed us. Thankful for how he's protected us. Thankful for how he has provided for us. We will come back and give thanks. Because, you know what? God rewards thankfulness. Now we go on into some incredible theology. Verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, notice how often these Pharisees always came and asked questions. I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing. The Pharisees asked more questions than anybody else. But being asked by a Pharisee, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will, it, nor will they say, look, here it is, or behold, there it is. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, brothers and sisters, I want you to understand when we talk about the kingdom of God, and that was the message that Jesus preached, that John the Baptist preached, and that the disciples went forth preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So now they're asking him about this in the midst of them. They're asking about this kingdom of God at hand. You have to understand the kingdom of God is not like a monarchy like England today, or where there's a king that rules over a geographical landmass. And in the Pharisee's mind, all they were looking for was the restoration of the kingdom of Israel and David as the king. That, that's all they wanted. They, all they could see was the physical. And Jesus said, no, no, no. The kingdom of God is not about a geographical landmass with a king. The kingdom of God refers to the authority of God in a given time and place. He said, God's authority is among you. This is why the message of the gospel is repent. Change your heart. Change your mind. Because the kingdom of God, the authority of God is at hand. The authority of God is here to change you. Now, now brothers and sisters, you, you, you have to understand that this is why we can be saved. We, we can be set free from the kingdom of darkness. We can be set free from Satan's authority. You know, this Christianity that says we, we go through a 13-step process to be changed, I, I don't understand. When God saved me, you're looking at a guy who'd smoked and drank some since the time I was about, my goodness, 11 years old? 
smoking two packs of cigarettes since I was like 11 years old. And when God saved me, boom, it was gone. When I made a decision to repent, the authority of God set me free. This is salvation, my friends. This is the, this is the gospel. It is not repent and then go through 13 years of counseling and maybe, maybe you'll feel better. No. The message of the gospel is the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. God's authority is right here, right now, to set you free. Now, if, if you're sitting here listening to me this morning and you're bound by alcohol, you're bound by pornography, you're bound by lying or stealing or cheating or whatever, whatever sin has you in bondage, you make a decision to repent and the authority of God sets you free. That is the good news. That is why we can have a changed life. Father, as hearts repent today, let these bondages be broken off of their life in Jesus' name. Ah, oh, the good news of salvation. And he said to the disciples, now he's talking to the followers, his students, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, this is judgment. Now, let me just stop right here. Some of you are saying, oh, he's talking about the rapture. No, he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to the disciples about the future of Israel. Now, you have to understand, there are things that are written in the Bible for us as believers that teach us about the rapture and the blessed hope that we have at the end of this age of grace. But Jesus also taught eschatology for the Jews. Let me say that, eschatology for the Jews, what it was going to be like for them. And this, he said, this on that day, he said, in this day of the Son of Man, this is a time of tremendous judgment. The rapture is not judgment. This is a time of tremendous judgment. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, when will the Son of Man be revealed? When is Jesus going to be revealed? When he comes in the second coming. Now, the second coming is different than the rapture. The second coming is when Jesus leaves heaven with the armies of heaven. He appears and every eye shall see him whom they have pierced, as the scripture says. And all of Israel will be saved in a day. That's the second coming. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in the bed. One will be taken and the other left. 
There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, one will be left. And they said, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, where the vultures will gather. This is all talking about the second coming of the Lord. Now notice, these Old Testament stories should affect our decisions today. And there's so much I could teach you on eschatology here, but this is morning devotions and not eschatology week. But let me just throw a couple of practical thoughts out of this today. Notice Jesus refers to the days of Noah. Jesus refers to the days of Lot and says, you know, looking at these things, don't you think that should affect your decisions today? All of the things in the Old Testament were written for our example. Now, I challenge you today, don't, don't pay attention to these people who tell you not to read the Old Testament. All of those things are written back there to teach us, to educate us, to bring us to Christ and as examples for us in helping us make good decisions. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
Yesterday, I was rushing to hurry up as we finished a passage there with the conquering of the five kings. But I want to remind you of something that I want you just to keep in your thinking. All right, just, just keep it in your thinking, because it's one of those questions. Do you remember how often Moses kept talking about the place that God would choose? Always saying that there would be a, a place that God would choose to put his name and build his temple, and that's where he was to be worshipped, and that's where the tithe was to be brought. Joshua understood this. He said in chapter 9, in the place that he, God, should choose. So everybody knew this place, but nobody went after it for hundreds of years. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of years until the time of King David. Jerusalem was never conquered and, and, and occupied and the temple built. Now, that's fascinating to me because we read yesterday in chapter 10, verse 1, that Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem. Now, Adonai Zedek means Zedek is Lord. So here's a guy who's got himself now as the king of Jerusalem. He rules over the Jebusites, and he is called Zedek is Lord. Now, that's fascinating to me because he, he tries to keep it close to Melchizedek. Obviously, going back to the time when Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ, was the king of Jerusalem and trying to bring up some of the, the supernaturalness of, of, of who God was in those days, hundreds of years before this, 400 years before this. So he's, he's named himself Adonai Zedek. Zedek is Lord, close to Melchizedek, but Adonai Zedek. Now, he is defeated. So, forgive me, Joshua and Israel could have taken over Jerusalem on that day. But it, didn't, it doesn't seem like they do that. They don't, they don't take over and occupy Jerusalem. Not for another four or five hundred years until the time of King David. And this is the place that God was choosing to put his name and put the temple. And you look at that and you go, why did they never go and occupy Jerusalem? Why did they never go and establish the, 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 the tabernacle of the wilderness and put it there in Jerusalem where God would choose? Why did it go to Shalom? You know, these are questions. And the only way you learn is to ask questions. So you say, Pastor, what are the answers? I have no idea. But I'm asking the questions. Kaya, as I study the Bible, I will learn. Let's pick up today in verse 28. As for Makada, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it, and as king, with the edge of the sword, he devoted to destruction every person in it and left none remaining. And he did it to the king of Makada just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makada to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it and its king into the hand of Israel. Now notice, it never says they conquered it. It said the Lord gave it. Now, you're going to see this phrase come up again and again. So let me just give you the principle. You and I should never take credit for the victories in our life. We should never take credit for the successes in our lives. I've always lived my life by a principle. If it fails, it was my idea. If it works, it's God's idea. I always give God credit for the victories, and I take responsibility for the failures. Say, so, Pastor, is that fair? Because God can't fail. I can fail, but God can. And anything, any victory I have, well, God gave it to me. So let's just keep our hearts humble and recognize every victory that you're having right now, God has given it to you. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none of them remaining, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. 
Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel. And he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. And Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went on from Eglon to Hebron, and they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left nothing remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and to every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with his kings and all his towns, and they struck it with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and Libna and to his king, so he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev, and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings, and left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded. Son Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. Why was he victorious? Because God fought for them. Then Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp in Gilgal. Now, before I go further, let me just throw two thoughts at you. One we just read. Whenever they returned for victory, they went back to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? Gilgal is where they had built the memorial to God. They always went back to the place of memory. They always went back to the place where they had built a memorial altar. They went back to the place of the altar. One of the things I've always learned in life, whenever God gives me a victory, I come back to the altar and say thank you. Now, the second thing I want you to notice, and you're going to see this again and again now for the rest of the day, and that is all these kings. You go, grabe tell God, this is not a very big area. No. But do you remember what God spoke about the first son of Abraham, not Isaac, the first son of Abraham, that he would be a wild jackass of a man, not able to live in peace with any of his neighbors. I want you to notice that before Israel came into this promised land, I want you to notice all those descendants of the first son of Abraham, they couldn't get along with each other. They constantly fought. They lived a totally divisive life. Lots of little kings, lots of little kingdoms, and nothing of any substance. You're going to find that divisive people can never build anything of greatness or magnitude because it takes unity to build things of greatness and magnitude. This is why sometimes there's lots of little churches because there's lots of little rebellious attitudes. It takes unity to build something great. And if you look across the land of Israel and you see all these kings with just a few cities, just everybody wants to make themselves, everybody wants to be a king. It is absolutely amazing. And it continues to this day. 
There will be no peace in Israel. There will be no peace in the Middle East until Jesus comes. Because that first son of Abraham, God said he will be like a wild donkey, a wild jackass of a man, not able to live at peace with anyone around, anybody around him. Chapter 11, verse 1. When Jamin, king of Hazar, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to King Shimon, the king of Ashprah, and to the kings who were in the northern hill country, and to the, and the, in the Arava south of Chinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphtali on the west, and to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country. Now there's those Jebusites up around Jerusalem. And the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mitzvah. And they came out with all their troops. Now notice, lots more little kingdoms in this very small land. Lots of little kings. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Now notice, there are some people that think that strength and might and numbers guarantees victory, but it does not. What guarantees victory is the presence of God. And the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. Did you hear that? God said, I'm going to do this. It's not by strength. It's not by might. It's not who has the most soldiers, and who has the most horses and chariots. It's who is God with. I will give them over all of them, slain to Israel, and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. In other words, you don't use their weapons of war that makes you feel strong. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell on them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon. And notice, God was going to give them the victory. But notice Joshua using strategy again. He came on them suddenly. They weren't expecting it. They were expecting Israel to step back and wait for the attack because, you know, this is looking so overwhelming. But instead, Israel said, let's go. They came, Israel initiated the attack. They weren't expecting this. Remember, strategy is better than any weapon. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misroth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mitzpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses, and burned their chariots with fire. Now, one day, I'm going to want to study in the Bible, what does God have against chariots and horses? But God never wanted any of the kings of Israel to have chariots and horses. Now, you know, I know the simple answer, because he always wanted them to rely upon him. But I think there's more to it than that. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor, and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed, and he burned Hazor with fire. And all the kings of those, all the cities of those kings, and all those kings Joshua captured, and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. 
and all the spoils of those cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Now notice, you've often heard me say that promises of God are generational, but so are commandments and instructions of God generational. Moses, this is how I want you to do it. Moses passed that command on to Joshua. Joshua didn't say, well, God told Moses that, but he didn't tell me that. Sometimes you have to understand, commands are generational. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon below Hermon. And they captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, in order that they should be devoted to destruction and receive no mercy but be destroyed, just as the Lord commanded Moses. And Joshua came at that time to cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, and from Deber, and from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to the destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. So Joshua took the whole land, according to all the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel, according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Now, it looks like Joshua has finished everything. But so that you don't lose this thought, you have to tie it over to chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years, and the Lord said to him, You are old and advanced in years, and there remains yet very much land to possess. So, you know, we seem to have a contradiction here. So that's one of those question marks that we put in our Bible. And I write chapter 13, verse 1 next to it. And I go over here and I write chapter 11, verse 23, next to chapter 13, verse 1, because that's one of my question marks. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon and all the Arabah eastward, Sihon, king of the Amorites who lived in Heshbon and who ruled from Aror, which is at the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chenaroth eastward and in the direction of Beth Jemaroth, in the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea southward to the foots of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, these were the giants, who lived in Ashtonoth, and at the Edri, who ruled over Mount Hermon, and Salach, and all of Bashan, to the country of the Gershonites, and the Machahites, and over half of Gilead, to the boundary of Sion, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses and the servant of the Lord gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. 
And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua, now notice we've talked about Moses, now we're talking about Joshua. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negev, and the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won, the king of Jerusalem won. Now notice they had conquered Jerusalem. The king of Hebron won, the king of Jarmuth won, the king of Lashish won, king of Eglon one, the king of Gezer one, the king of Debir one, the king of Geder one, the king of Hormah one, the king of Ard one, the king of Libna one, the king of Adullam one, the king of Makada one, the king of Bethel one, the king of Tapua one, the king of Hepper one, the king of Afak one, the king of Lasharan one, the king of Madan one, the king of Hazor one, the king of Shimron Meron won, the king of Asphak won, the king of Tanakh won, the king of Megiddo won, the king of Kadish won, the king of Jenorkam in Carmel won, the king of Dor in Naphtaor won, the king of Goim in Galilee won, the king of Tizra won, in all 31 kings. 31 kings, and they had not yet even conquered all of the land yet, as we see here in chapter 13, verse 1. So again, you have an extremely divided, tribalistic, feuding area where these descendants of Abraham's first son, the wild donkey of a man, could not get along with their neighbors. And now God ends all that confusion and brings back Abraham and the descendants of Isaac to take over the promised land. We'll see you tonight. Seven o'clock.